Yes, indeed. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Yes, Indeed podcast. It's a new month, basically, so we have a new podcast. Yeah, it's June 24th, and I don't know who you are. I don't either. <laughs> Yo, wait, you're that, you're that Brian Computer, right? I've been hearing about you, Bernard Zeiger. Yes. But I would never call you Bernard. You ben. could. Anyway, today we're talking about a few things. We're talking about a couple board games. For the 14th time ever. That's true. The 14th time ever. We've never done it off the podcast. Only on the podcast. We have Concept, Dead of Winter. Those are board games. Those are board games. And then we have a whole lot of concerts. I went to England. <laughs> it's true. And then uh, a couple of games at the end, video games, talking about Telltale's The Walking Dead, and kind of working in progress. Not Telltale's Cook, Serve, Delicious. <laughs> true. <laughs> Same game, different style. Yeah. Clickety-clack, 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 clickety-clack. Clickety-clack. Clack. Clickety-clack. Up. Clickety-clack. Yes, indeed. It's like the sea without the raft. It's like the window without the draft. It's like the draft without the lottery. It's like the clay without the pottery. It's like the pottery without the smashing. It's like the zombies without the bashing. So, of the games I've played the most in my life... It's probably Ethnos Concept as like two of the tops. And that wasn't true two months ago. Yeah. So so Concept is uh, a new new installment in our board game collection as of the last year or so. And it's it's something that's uh really good at, at appealing to a lot of different people's uh, ways that they enjoy games. So, uh, you know, I think it's it's worth it's worth talking a bit, maybe in a second, about how well you, you found a community to play it with when you went away to improv camp. Um, but to start with, what, what is Concept? So Concept um, is a game that has a board with a bunch of pictures on it. Uh, and they're not just random pictures. They're pictures that are trying to... They basically said, can we try to make a category for everything you would need to explain any idea to anybody ever? So there's like a picture for uh, occupation. There's a picture for movie, for TV, for books, for food, for spiral symbols. Uh, Colors... You know, War, fictional, love, real, yeah. happiness. Sad. So, sad. We know that one. <laughs> so, uh, so the idea is that basically it's, it's uh, nonverbal communication, sort of like um, a similar type of, of thinking to something like Pictionary, where you kind of are trying to communicate a, a, a word using anything but words. Um, except this is, this is a bit more about like creative thinking using what you have rather than kind of free form draw whatever you want. And that's why I think the closest corollary I've found to this is it's kind of like charade except instead of acting out you're 
putting things on pictures to suggest that this thing is made up of those little things. So um, the if, game gives you like five different like concepts you can you can play with. So let's say my word is zebra. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to get Ben to guess zebra. So my first guess, I probably put the main idea is on animal. Yeah. And then Ben knows that he's dealing with an animal. Then the second I put cubes on like black and white, Ben's probably like zebra. Or penguin. Or penguin. But, and then I could like, I could uh, put things on cubes that suggest actually, Not if a it was a penguin, I could put it on like cold. And if it wasn't a penguin, I could put it on like fast for a zebra or something yeah. like that. So you have a bunch of um, leeway with how you do it because it is really this is a, the way I always enter a game is this this board is your sandbox. Um, you can really do whatever you want with it. So I think it's it's a game that really lets you be creative. And even though you might start to develop a meta with the people you're playing with, of like we notice that this is the best way to play the game to quickly get everybody on the same page. You still have people who think a little bit outside the box, think a bit differently, and end up getting words that seem harder or impossible. Like our big epic one was resign and it took us like 30 minutes to get it, but we got it. And it was amazing. Cause we ended up using like charade style sounds like of like two syllable, the first part of this word, the second part of this. So like recycling and design. Yeah. And that's how we got there. So it is, it's a game that really does. It doesn't put any limits on your creativity. And I think, the reason it's a lot more accessible than a thing like charades is charades has that element of like public embarrassment mm-hmm. you might have where you, people feel embarrassed to get up in front of people. But given that you're just putting things on a board, the only anxiety you're running up against is people not guessing. But given that it's not a competitive game, uh, it's actually kind of fun to do this because you might start, you'll think it's really easy. You put a few cubes down and then nobody is anywhere close. Yeah. And you're like, I need to do something different. Otherwise, they have no chance here. And then you try something new. And then maybe that one works or maybe it doesn't. If it starts to work and they get closer, then you it gives you like new life. Yeah. Like you, you feel invigorated that you're like, I can get them in the ballpark of this thing. So that means it feels accomplishable. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is because everybody, one person is giving the clue and everybody else is guessing. It's a game that really has a nice pace to it where either someone does a thing and then immediately it's guessed because of insane magic brain chemistry stuff that's going on. (laughs) Or um, you work on that journey together and then as people's guesses get better, then the clue giver gets more excited and like eager to finish and um, it has a really nice arc that way. Totally. I mean, to build on what you said earlier, there's no timer, so there's no pressure in that regard. And also, unlike charades where it's kind of like, People who don't like performing or like being up on a stage in front of people, the fact that all of the the attention of the group is not on you, but it's on a board actually makes it a lot less kind of intense and stressful for people who feel anxiety around those, those situations. Um, And, and I think that, you know, one, one other element to it that that's worth mentioning is that it is really fun to play with people um, like a couple of times just because you start to see the differences in the way that people think yeah so one person will think uh the way to do zebra is fast another person will think to put like lots of cubes on black and lots of cubes on white so there's like lots of different stripes or whatever or you might do yeah there's like you can do 
you could probably get stripes with like alternating cube colors there's like really a bunch of stuff you can do with that yeah um and it is and to echo a bit of those points too it's it's a game that's like super scalable like you can have pretty much any number play concept which mm-hmm. is why it was so successful at improv camp you'd set it up at the table and then people would slowly clump over to it and then we would have like 11 people guessing and one person clue giving but that was fine it's still in, in fact it's even cooler when there's more people almost because someone will say something that's completely idiotic basically like summarizing what's on the board and it's like be a joke. it's a food that you that has pockets and then someone will go pita and then the person who said it's a food that has pockets and in like, like oh, a jokey way they were like i'm helpful i got the assist but i was <laughs> just summarizing like yeah. It's a game that really, it's just about connecting people's like weird brain maps that are like all over the place and just like finding a node and accessing it and then watching people get there together is really cool. And then it's also super stoppable mm-hmm. because the rounds usually take like five, five. minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so easy to just say like, all right, we'll do three more of these and then we'll stop. Um, so it's well, awesome for any kind of atmosphere where people might come in and out. You want to play to any number all of those things it makes for a perfect game for that. Totally. And and it is it is cool that like it has reasons that it's engaging both when you have people who are just exploring how different one of those brains are as well as when you've played with the same group of people either just within the same setting or over multiple settings you start to come up with a shared language of of visuals that you're not you know, it's not formalized but all of you kind of invent this the system to be able to communicate with one another more clearly. And that's that's a really cool experience to be building a communication system. A so nonverbal that, communication system. Yeah, that that people, you know, everyone is authoring it together and it it allows you to to share thoughts without using words, which is super cool. And that's we were doing one um, where I had set up and then everybody was like guessing and kind of just floundering around a little bit. And then my friend Amy came over, who we had played a bunch of concepts together at camp. And the second she sat down, she like had it in a second. Yeah. And everyone was like, "What?" Like she looked at the board for like five seconds. Yeah. And yeah, was yeah. able to guess it, and it was that was like a very cool. It was like no one else spoke our language, so obviously when the person who spoke the language came my entry was understood right so that was really cool and i think the reason it did so well with improv folks is it's that you're using a part of your brain that you normally don't use um you can it's kind of like your the taboo brain where you're not allowed to think of things linearly you have to kind of think of things sideways and then because it's pictures there's another layer of like thinking about things in another layer of abstract so if you like doing like mental challenges of like how do i get how do i connect this to this and not the most obvious way which i think a lot of improv ultimately ends up doing um concept is is a game that that's the whole game so like people loved it Mm -hmm. another game that people love is dead of winter dead of winter so this is i think this is in the There are a few ways you can slice board games. You can slice them by mechanics. You can slice them by what theme they are. But I think one of the coolest ways to slice things is how thematic things are. And I think Dead of Winter pretty much takes the cake. Yeah. It it feels, I think, the most immersive of board games that I've played. And what world are you exploring? 
So what's interesting about it is that it's it's taking a foray into one of the most overused worlds in kind of geeky culture. Try not to eye roll when you hear Ben's description of zombies. it. Zombies. So, uh, so what it does that I really appreciate is that, um, you know, I think the, the classic zombie thing, which may end up coming back as a theme later <sighs> on, is this idea that, like, in a zombie apocalypse, you're not really looking at the zombies as terrifying. You're looking at how people are terrifying in a, an apocalyptic situation, blah, 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 whatever. But what's really cool about Dead of Winter is that it is about the dead, and it's about the winter. So the game is just about, just as much about like staying warm and surviving, just like getting food and having, having uh, heat and a clean place to live and stuff like that, as it is about fighting zombies. Um, and it's not a power fantasy. Like it's not like go in and kill a bunch of zombies with your friends because that's awesome. It's like you have to survive and scavenge and like stay alive as a group. Um, if you win, it's very much like a, we made it as opposed to like a, oh yeah, we did it. Yeah, totally. You never, you never, it's never like a coasting experience. It's, it's a very intense game. And there, I think there's a decent chunk of rules in Dead of Winter, um, which can be off-putting to some people. But again, because it's so thematic, I think that's the reason it has such staying power as a game that we like to bring out and show people. Because mm-hmm. again, people are, when you say board games, people are used to games like Monopoly or whatever. And then when you bring out a thing like Dead of Winter, that it's a bit heavier, it's uh, a bit longer and all that. But it has just this really cool feel about it where you're like, all right, these are my characters. This is their story in my head. And, you know we are going to go to the police station and try to find supplies because if we stay at the colony, we'll have to be, we'll have to find food. Yeah. So let's, we can't afford that. So let's unpack that a bit more. So the way that the game is set up is that there's one place called the colony. The colony is kind of like the central spot where anybody who's not off on a, on a scavenging run hangs out. And then there are six other locations where it's lots of different places that it's like the gas station, the school, the police station, and naturally you'll find different types of supplies in different locations. Right. So if you go to the gas station, you're more likely to find gas versus if you go to the hospital, you're more likely to find medicine. And you know, there's some food in the gas station, but there's more food in the grocery store or whatever. Um, so the game is is played with kind of like this this big objective that everyone is trying to achieve over the course of of play, and the game plays in like five rounds it's not it's not like a long repetitive game it's just that every single moment has to be strategic in order for the for the team to be successful um because it is this this whole element of like you don't you don't know what's coming next there's a lot of kind of twists and turns that the game takes um and a lot of it is from these uh kind of crisis cards that come out where like it says if you if you don't get uh, enough gas to keep the generator running this this round, then people are gonna lose morale. Um, or maybe if the generator is keeping people warm, then everyone's gonna get frostbite or something. Um, and and then everyone that turn has to like pivot from what they're doing and you know run to the gas station and start digging for gas. Um, and then there's a whole element where like the more people are at a location, the more zombies are drawn there, so the more you have to like kill zombies and put up barricades and try to protect yourselves um and it's 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 scary like there's lots of moments in the game where 
if you're traveling, you could be fine or you could get attacked and wounded or you could get attacked and get frostbite um, from being out in the cold too long or you could get bit and then if you get bit, you could end up killing other survivors. So, you know, there's there's a lot of, of elements that make it challenging. Um, and then on top of all of that, you know, there's kind of like this big objective, like there's all sorts of scenarios, like everybody needs to have a bunch of food by the end to be able to make a long journey or you need a lot of gas and a weapon to kind of hit the road or whatever. Um, or there's, uh, well, so on top of that, each individual player has their own secret objective, which they're trying to do. And basically the whole time, anyone's secret objective is something that could and probably does hurt the whole overall team. It encourages selfish gameplay. Yeah. In a cooperative um, game. Yeah. So, but even though you might have a selfish objective, you also have the objective that everybody has to win in order for you to win. Right. So you do want to work together. But you you might end the game with a bunch of cards in your hand that other people needed. Right. So uh, we actually we just played around with with uh, our group, and at the end we we had to push really hard because we needed to get a bunch of food in order to survive. And we were at the point where it was like, all right, we have we have this much morale, which means we can spare this many survivors in order to not like go mad <laughs> and, and grieve. Yeah, because uh, the because anytime a survivor dies, you lose morale. Yeah, so we were like, we just need the food, so people are expendable at this point, and then you know, we got so close. We yeah, and then and then at the end when we were doing the kind of like post game, one of the people had been, you know, hiding away a bunch of food that they weren't sharing with the group the whole time, and you know that definitely would have you know we barely lost. And that would have made the difference. So it's we were like idea. one card away, and he had four of them in his hand. <laughs> <laughs> so it is this interesting feeling of like your friends being people that you can trust and also not trust. Um, for folks who like games that are a little bit more cutthroat and competitive, there's also this element that you can play with where one of the people could be more than just having a selfish objective. Their objective could be to make the group lose. So... Uh, they're a traitor and then there's a whole thing where you can exile the traitor but you don't know who the traitor is and if you make an accusation and it's the wrong person then that really hurts the team and it, it makes sense why that exists from a gameplay perspective because since everybody kind of acts selfishly anyway that masks it a bit it, you are immediately suspicious of everybody because then you know you're like okay who has fuel and then two people are like i have fuel and then everyone else you're like really you don't have any fuel and then they do this like you can tell they're BSing and they say, oh yeah, no, uh, it's just food in my hand. But but that either they're doing that because they're trying to help the team and they're trying to get everyone gas, um, or like they just like want food for themselves, or they're trying to make the whole team lose. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that uh, when we've played in the past, it's it's been pretty frustrating because usually the game is so difficult to start with that... The trader can basically like go along and be totally unassuming the whole game, and then at the very end, they can just tank the team and everyone loses, which is not fun. Yeah, um, that's why we don't like to play with the competitive variant because the, there's enough of this like weird cooperative competitive edge to it without this trader mechanic, where you know you already have this feeling where. It's not as simple as a cooperative game where everyone's working together and they beat the game and you're like, yay, we did it. Um, it is this kind of tense, scary situation where you're like, come on, like, 
even if it hurts you just for a turn or so, like we'll help you later, but we just need food right now or people are going to start starving. Um, and, and that like tension is already present in a way that I think is satisfying without additionally needing to have this like potentially very frustrating trader mechanic kick in. And, um, that's all true. And there's a game that's really good. And then there's also these really nice little story moments that happen in the game. Cause there, the deck comes with the game comes with this deck of cards called the crossroads deck. Um, so if you're the person who's to the right of whoever turn it is, you pick up one crossroad card for the turn. And it has it might a funny say, condition on it yeah. that has to be satisfied. And if it is, then it kicks in. Yeah. So it might be like, if John Gluber is at the library and then you say, yeah, no, no, don't take your turn, this thing happens. And they're like very like self-contained little stories about like maybe you find a, a bunch of helpless survivors and... You'll lose morale if you turn them away, but if you add them to your colony, they'll... You have to feed them. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there are all these like little scenarios that don't add too much to the game other than story, but it's those story moments feel like some of the coolest moments of the game, too. Totally. Like We, we had one where there was this trucker who was like driving across uh, or driving to a location, and uh, he, he noticed a shortcut over some ice and decided to like drive the truck over this pretty unsteady ice and uh ended up you know, everything went fine because he got lucky um but if he hadn't gone that way it would have taken longer um but he ended up going that way and finding like something awesome because of the shortcut he had extra time to search so it's so just, the game like, rewarded cool us but then but it was, like felt really cool thematically why the game rewarded us yeah totally because the trucker was like I bet I bet old Bessie can make it over this this thick sheet of ice. She's done worse. And as Scott said that, half the group rolled their eyes and were like, like no, no, maybe it seems it. like a bad idea to drive your truck over the ice. <laughs> and this guy was like, I don't know. I think I should do it. <laughs> so those those moments are, again, really cool to have enforced in the game. Penguin song. Penguin song. Nick. Nick the penguin. Yes, indeed. It's like the microphone without the stand. It's like the on without the brand. It's like the brand without the money. It's like the toast without the honey. It's like the honey without the applesauce. It's like the crust without the hand tossed. Concerts. Oh my. <laughs> yeah, so um, it doesn't seem like I should have that much to talk about because I'm talking about a week's worth of concerts. But that week of concerts was... Arguably one of the most intense weeks of concerts you've ever had. One of the most intense weeks I've ever had. Yeah. So I um, I took a trip to London and England to just go see concerts and have the only thing on my agenda for a week be music, um, which was awesome. It was absolutely incredible. Um, well, and London's a special place for you. Yeah, because you know, uh, it's it's if you're a fan of the indie rock as I am, uh, then you can't ignore a place like England, especially if you like the two thousands indie rock thing. All, a lot of the iconic bands are from England. Whether you're talking about um, bands that have staying power like the Arctic Monkeys or bands that were 
you know, like momentarily seeming like the coolest band in the world, like Hard Fire, Kaiser Chiefs. Um, and to go up and be and finally experience that music culture live firsthand was amazing. Um, I was talking to a coworker at ASCAP and he met, he, they just did a, some, a tour of shows in the UK also. And they're, they don't have like a particularly big band, but they went to the shows and like people were singing all their lyrics. And then Michael was like, why, why are you singing our songs? <laughs> so immediately when we asked him how the trip was, he was like, Londoners like England loves their music. Like, I don't know. The UK just loves their music. Um, there's just something about it. And if, even if you look at like music production per capita, the UK is off the, off the chains, off the scale. Like it, no one else compares to their musical output. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so speaking of musical output, right. You had a lot of musical input. So what yeah, was yeah. that? So the, the first thing I did the first night was I went and saw a lad band. Um, so like a classic British indie rock band, um, like a bit later era than like what I would consider the classics, like, you know, Kaiser Chiefs. So it was a band called Spectre, um, who have, I think their first album was in 2010, um, who are pretty good. They do that like, uh, like pretty boppy thing with the lead singer who has a pretty deep voice. And as a, a lot of the songs are about like being nerdy and <laughs> not finding love which England eats that stuff up. Um, I mean, their their best and most popular song is a song called All the Sad Young Men. So <laughs> it was pretty awesome. Um, and I finally got to do that and like be in a London venue and see a, like that band. And that was just like a thing that's been on my bucket list for a really long time. And you could tell it was going to be an amazing thing beforehand because even they played Fluorescent Adolescent by the Arctic Monkeys beforehand. And everyone in the audience was just singing along to it, even though it was just like a song being played on their like speaker system. And it's, it was amazing how immediately I noticed the way that songs can sound different based on their context. So like when everyone is shouting along to fluorescent adolescent and like, not, not quite as like they seem, not quite like they seem, oh flow, boom. Boom. It's very different when you have an entire room of people singing a song and it feels like poppier. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing. It, you can see in a moment how England has a different pop culture than America. So, where... so talk, talk a bit about those differences. Because I think that, that that kind of is is an experience that you can only speak to as somebody who has had such a foundation of understanding what american audiences are like and then now having had this experience in in london well there's i have a few different theories on what exactly it is all of it are purely speculative (laughs) i don't actually know yeah for your for your experience from for my money um there's a history of british pop music stemming from guitars um it probably goes back as far as the beatles possibly earlier um but even continues into things like the smiths or the Britpop movement of the 90s where you had bands like Pulp that were pretty much guitar bands that were playing popular music, which is a lot rarer of a thing in the U.S. If you think of the big U.S. pop songs, it's like Beyonce and, you know, Katy Perry and Madonna is huge, right? So it's, it's a very different type of song. And I think that song structure, given that it's different, means that people consume music differently and even though yes beyonce is still big in england um you have a lot more bands that chart 
partially due to the size of England. Um, but also, I mean, there's a bunch of different theories. Like, maybe there's just, like, not a lot to do in England. And as opposed to doing things like sports, that people are actually obsessed with things like music. So then you have bands like Bombay Bicycle Club, who are 16, playing in their school assembly, and then the next year releasing, you know, Evening Morning and getting a record deal and putting out I Had the Blues and Shook Them Out. Like, it's a completely different culture, um, just in terms of, like, what people do when they do it. What types of music they like. British music's likely to be more sad. Mm-hmm. Um, for some reason, they love that phenomenon that I love also of like being in a place and dancing to a song that seems happy, but is like you can tell is definitely a sad song, whether it's sung sad or, you know, has this very minor chord heavy. Something about it. It's just like the way they consume their popular music. It's just a different thing. And, and what differences were there in terms of the, the way that people around you were, were acting? Well, it's, it's a few different things. I mean, it depends on where you are in the U.S. You can't, the U.S. is so particular about its music tastes by like cities and states that mm. you can't really say there's one music culture in America. Just like I went to shows in London, I can't tell you about the music culture in all of the U.K. Mm. But um, from what I did notice, like New York people are the worst <laughs> which we've known for a while right they're the, the group that like go to concerts and stand in place and they're too concerned with looking cool to actually enjoy themselves and there is none of that in london where like when specter went on one chord in absolutely everybody was singing along to all of the lyrics and all the songs pushing to be <laughs> as close as humanly possible um and i've been to i've been to like a few scant shows like that but for a band like specter in the u.s that would play like a pretty tiny venue it was like a very surreal experience to see them like on the stage living like rock stars Mm. like that was a particularly cool thing of like seeing a bunch of like really nerdy folks um just like being kings for the night totally so so what other bands than than uh little lab band inspector did you see yeah so um after that um i went to three days of music festivals um, so it was a new festival called All Points East. Um, had a ton of bands that were amazing. So I'm just going to go day by day and kind of hit the highlights. Um, so first day, I'd say the highlights were... There were three bands I would super love. Glass Animals I also saw, who were pretty decent. But, oh my god, people love them. And I just don't understand why they're obsessed with them. Like, <laughs> I've, they have a weird thing with pineapples. Like, they love pineapples. They had a big disco ball pineapple. Like, <laughs> like who, who are you? Weird um, and the front row was nothing but Glass Animals fans, and like a lot of them peeled off for the rest of the day. Which, as I talk about that, that seems crazy to me. <laughs> but they all—I've never seen so much like pineapple clothing in my life. It's like people had pineapple earrings and shirts and bags, and I was like, "Y'all, what's happening?" Um, and they seem fine. I don't know. They—they they don't seem that emotionally packed. They just seem like. They're a fun band. Yeah. Whatever. Anyway, um, I saw Young Fathers again, who obviously still amazing and like rocked their... They, I mean, they did a bunch of... It was like very dance heavy. It was like very bass heavy set. So the, a lot of the people in the front row were like, I don't know what they were singing because it was just like all bass Feeling. in my face. Yeah. And which is <laughs> odd. Like I, I like that dirty stuff. So that's really good. But it's like... Very, I think they dialed up the grime, which I'm all about. Um <laughs> But we're, like, so into it. And you can tell they, they like, like their music a lot. And uh, 
they don't care if you like it or not they're but they're going to be amped to play it no matter what and mm. have this very serious air about them that's awesome and like fire um so they played and then the two awesome i mean like absolutely amazing things were the last two bands after glass animals were the yeah and lcd sound system so i went and saw my new york bands in london <laughs> which was weird but um yeah it was i was i got to be front row and i've never been front row for a show before uh and they're so awesome they just they still have all of this panache and style and like particularly karen o it's it's like impossible not to watch her on stage as she just like moves about with this fire and their whole general like every song has attitude um which is just a really hard thing to curate and it's just it feels so real and genuine and there's something about their music that it's not particularly you you don't listen to it and you're like oh this is a really interesting and nuanced complex song structure they have but it also doesn't sound like songs you know Mm. which is really hard to have a song that's not that complicated and packed so much um and like I got to sing in Karen O's microphone during Cheating Hearts with the like do 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 like that part oh it's so good and yeah and uh, that was my first cry of the trip was when they played Maps um, I'm sure a lot of people have emotional connections to Maps but beyond my own personal connections to it you know the like two intro bits they had for the song it was like uh, you know this is a love song. This is a yeah yeah yeah's love song, and there's something about like the way she said that, and like left it like a yeah yeah yeah's love song. Like this isn't any other love song you've heard. This is how we do it. And then she said, "This is a love song that's about loving someone more than life itself." And something about that, it's just like this amazing filter to put onto a song that's already like super emotionally packed, but to like hear it through that lens of like. Yeah, and when you, you when she's you know yelping, wait, they don't love you like I love you, it adds this whole other layer. And that song already is one of those like instant goosebump songs, and something with the surrealness of like being in London, being for a row, watching Karen O do this, uh, and having a goosebump song it was like overwhelmingly awesome. Mm-hmm. Super emotional. Yeah, and then, and like great mix of songs also. They just like varied it up. A whole bunch of stuff from fever to towel and show your bones and you know all sorts of stuff zero and you know <laughs> heads will roll like all is so good just like a really good set list and then lcd played and that was awesome that's the the first time i've seen them since the first time i saw them where they weren't at brooklyn steel for me <laughs> um so i'm very used to, i'm used to the like intimate setting for them so seeing them at a festival again was like all oh, right i have to get used to the like people constantly pushing on me kind of thing um but still just absolute fire like they're so fun and everyone's dancing all the time you cannot not um and like amazing set just so much fun hands down you know all the new songs live sound super amazing they started playing how do you sleep which is like a super amazing song that has one of those like three minutes in it adds like a boom 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 like really dirty huge bass part that like <laughs> blows your mind and like the visual was really cool or it's just like very simple but like the song would be like really red and like be stroby in the right like mirroring the beat and just like the perfect way and obviously that's a band that's all about style so like 
you look at James and you experience a different thing than looking at Pat and looking at Nancy and you just get all of it. And it's just amazing. Like you can't see LCD too many times because mm-hmm. it's just a giant fun dance party. Like why wouldn't you want to just keep doing that over and over again? A giant fun dance party that ultimately ends up being like a pretty emotional set of songs where, you know, especially the new albums, like all just about like James Murphy being like, Oh yeah, no, all I do is think about death now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so um, LCD was pretty special. And that was just just Friday. Wow. Um, and then Saturday happened. And I'll go a little bit less into detail because if I went into detail about all the acts I saw on Saturday and Sunday, we would be having a three-hour-long podcast. <laughs> um, but I saw Rex Orange County, who were really good, like super fun. Um, no, that wasn't even that day. Yeah, it was. That was? Uh, oh, well. Anyway, I think I saw them that day. I saw them one of the days. Um, they have, like, a really nice, like, they have some, like, a brass and, like, saxophone and, like, generally a nice sound. They're fine. Then I saw Likey Lee, who is absolutely amazing. She's still got her very, like, particular style where it's, you know, some people do, they show style and effort and energy through big, and Likey Lee throws it shows it through small mm. um so you're really like attuned to her emotions and her moments and you know it was very new stuff heavy which was cool um i'm still one of those people who thinks that like her first album is is my favorite um so that was like i have always wanted to hear more of those but you know that's I, like got to hear a little bit um a little bit um <laughs> and yeah it's just i mean it's really really solid like very stylish set like i said um and then went over and saw Sampha, who just won the mercury prize for like best british album last year like has one of those super iconic voices where you hear it featured in the song and you're like this song wouldn't be the same without Sampha. but whether it's like all these subtract songs that samples him or everything is recorded as a new record that just put out a bunch of Sampha samples um, or his own stuff. It's just really cool. Like he has this song that's absolutely emotional and moving. That's called, uh, no one knows me like the piano. And, uh, it's a song that's like, no one knows me like the piano in my mother's home. And like the piano mirrors his saying, Oh, it's really cool. Um, and it's just one of those songs that like, I've never heard someone write that song. That's a really cool personal thing. Um, and then I went from that, and then I saw Lord again. What? This is my third Lord trip this year. And you know what? She's still super awesome. <laughs> One of my few souvenirs from the trip is uh, Lord had little like uh, confetti that had stars on them that was like, that green light, I want it, written on it or whatever. So I have one of those, and it's real dirty. It's so fun. Um, but yeah, and this is the first time that I saw her where I like know like all her songs now. Because um, ever since I've, I've continued to see her this year, I've been more and more obsessed with seeing all of them. So like the melodrama stuff, I'm like, I was all in on, and everyone around me was like, yeah, we know like Royals. <laughs> but it was, I mean, she's so fun. She's just, like, dancey, and like I said, she just has this presence on stage of, like, you will like me. <laughs> I'm awesome. And, like, she knows it, and it's so good. And it's, you can't not see Lord. She's just so good. Um, and then the main act that night was the XX. And I'm going to slow down a bit for this one, because this is, that was a really special thing. 
they're from London, like they played their first gig and then hung out in Victoria Park, which is where the music festival was, and like forty thousand people, they were the headliner where they're from, and you could tell it meant a lot to them. Um, they weren't they weren't crapping when they said, oh, "We've been thinking about this show every day for a year," and you know that was true. Um, so it was just really special, and that they're like really cool mix of songs that are so simple and yet so emotionally packed and then the jamie xx beat side of things where you're just like dancing along to things and singing and like ah so good and like absolutely everyone in the audience singing along to like a slow version of i dare you or them closing out the night on uh angels and just like when they had everybody with them at the moment and they were like this is our last song and then they just play a song where like most of the song is just them going if everybody else understood then they'd be as in love with you as i am they'd be as in love with you as i am they would be as in love with you as i am they would be in love 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 and like with very light instrumentation on top of that to like 40,000 people where you grew up as a headliner ending the night that's powerful and like I was just on loop I was just singing that in my head as I walked like 45 minutes home it was just like a very magical thing it felt real surreal and then Sunday happened and um big highlight takeaways Bjork is crazy Instead of having melody, she had, it was her on stage with the percussionists and seven flute players. And now they, they did versions of all of her songs that they played where the melody was strictly played by flutes. That's all I have to say about Bjork. <laughs> Beck was really cool because Beck has a bunch of different musical styles that he packs into one. So like some of it's indie rock, some of it's like kind of psychedelic, some of it's like even hip hoppy. And I wasn't anticipating to like Beck that much, but I was pretty close for him. And I was like, this is awesome. This is really cool. Um, Friendly Fires felt like a really cult, cool thing to be a part of where, you know, they're a band that had broken up for a few years, for like five years. So that was just magical of like being able to dance to like Hawaiian Air and Paris with a bunch of people who like were all in on Friendly Fires and just like dance their heart out. That was awesome. Like they're, you know, they're a band that's like fifty percent percussion, so it's I'm all about that. And like the lead singer was just like dancing like crazy, and it's the same way that like LCD came back and they said, "We have to be better than we've ever been before, otherwise this doesn't make sense." You could tell that they were trying to have that air of like, "This is gonna be. We want every show that we play next to be our best friendly fire show." That's the air I got from them, um, and the audience was all in. And you just can't beat, like, cult shows like that, um, where everybody feels like they're witnessing something that's special. Um, and then also on Sunday, I saw Sylvanesso, who the, I then, when I came back from in London, saw them again at GovBall, Gov because I'm a crazy person, but you cannot see Sylvanesso too many times. They're just so good. And it's, like, the way she dances on stage and, like, their chemistry as the two of them... It is just so good. And she can sing like crazy when she's dancing like crazy. And like, oh my God, I can jump front row to like kick jump twist like all day. Every day. 
it's so amazing and and it's cool it's like they're you know they're it's it just seemed like they were like a slightly amount smaller over there which was cool too because then i got to be like i'm the super fan here um and like really feel like i was owning and like driving the energy of the crowd and that other people were into it for sure um like some people were like i only bought a ticket for today because sylvanessa was playing and like there's some of that but i was like the kid who was like going hard that was really <laughs> cool um so yeah it was the music festival it was amazing it was epic um and then monday happened and yeah so this is that was four days of my london trip only and then I had two more nights to do. So that Monday, I got to see Deep Throat Choir, who are like a 20-person all-women's choir, who I really like. And, you know, I've started to like choir music a lot more since I'm in a choir. Um, but their arrangements are like really musically interesting, and they do all sorts of really cool arrangements. Um, and getting able to hear them live in like a small gazebo um, was a really cool thing. It's like... You, there's certain things where you're like, I'm never going to get to do this in my life. And then it happens to you like within a year and you're like, what? My life is cool. <laughs> um, yeah, it was so cool. And I was just like jiving along with it so well. And like, it's just cool to hear and like being able to see and like point at like, this person's making this noise that I'm hearing. That's a, that's a really cool thing, especially with the choir where there's, and the, especially the way they are where it, it I feel like they take songs and they really like bring them to life Mm. so that you appreciate the original more than you would have before. So like Daydreaming by Dark 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 is a song that might not have been on my radar before, but the way they make it come to life, I now hear things in the song that I didn't before I heard their arrangement of it, which is really awesome. And then my like victory lap on that one was someone came up to me afterwards and were like, you clearly know who they are. What, what's the name of them again? I was like, Deep Throat Choir. So uh, it's like, I'm the kid from New York here in London telling people about their local bands. Like, <laughs> that felt really cool. And then that night I went to, uh, like, an underground jazz club. Like, it was in the basement of a place and saw Alessi's Ark, which was really cool. Because there are some songwriters who my general theory for them is, like, recorded. They almost sound too polished. And then when you see them live, you see why... They're professional musicians, and that, that was very much what the vibe I got from Alessi's hardcore. There's like a bunch of people who have seen her before and really, really appreciate her. Um, and I was blown away by the fidelity of the songs and then went to listen to them afterwards and was like, eh. So there's something, certain bands you just kind of like have to see live. There's something about, especially the singer-songwriters where there's so much about, I talked about before, like emotional timbre of being able to hear that in the lead singer's voice. Some of that can get lost in recording, especially if you want to put out a nice polished thing. And I think you can only really hear that live sometimes. And being able to do that and do a thing that, like, I was the only one who was... Like, everyone else was was just, like, a person from London who loved Alessi's Ark. Like, having those experiences when you travel, I feel like it's really hard to do unless you put a lot of effort into f- figuring out what you want to do. Um, so that was really nice. And then... Tuesday, I went to Edinburgh <laughs> for a day because I'm a madman. And then I saw like a, a like performing arts festival there and got to see Admiral Fallow, who I super, super, super adore. It was three of them as opposed to the full band. 
but you know, like the clarinet player, the keyboard player, and the the main lead singer guy, um, and it was just stunningly beautiful. It was in like an old renovated theater, and they played like amazing selection of like absolutely emotionally charged songs, and it just that was when everything clicked of the moment of surreal, of how is this happening to me? Like how am I here right now in Scotland hearing a Scottish band? and a band I didn't think I'd see in my life and it's like it I was shattered <laughs> and I it's cool to be shattered in a good way <laughs> so that happened and then uh, a few more Scottish singer-songwriters played and then they did uh, this thing called Distant Voices so it was like a full like hour and 15 minute set of people from Admiral Fallow and Emma Pollock and these bands that had played before, C. Duncan, uh, members of them playing and writing songs with folks from the extended like prison communities. So like whether those are people in prison or people who work in the criminal justice field, interviewing them and like writing songs with them about their experience and then sharing that with the world. So it was a pretty cool idea. And yeah, it was just really cool. It's just like a bunch of different other singer songwriters would come out and like do one song and just felt like a really special really scottish thing that i got to be a part i just got to be an observer for for one day um and to me there's no better cooler outcome that you can get from traveling than like really just getting to be an observer somewhere and taking it in and especially when that's music related that's when i've got my holy union of awesomeness Mm -hmm. um and then i came back and then i went to golf ball <laughs> Why did I do it, man? Uh, it was fun. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was fun. I got to see Salvinasso again. I got to see churches again. Um, church was a weird one because they were on the slot directly before Eminem. And that was weird because no Eminem fan liked churches. So they were like the whole time you could tell they were conscious about it and were like, sorry, we tried to pick songs that you would like the most. Eminem fans. Eminem is coming. I'm sorry, we're going to keep playing. Uh, this one's called Every Open Eye. <laughs> but they were fire, and I was like dancing along to everything. But you could tell they were uncomfortable on stage. Yeah. So that's that's always a weird experience for being in the audience when they're like a bit bummed out. Uh, well, clearly somebody programmed that set who did not think that through entirely. No, they did, because they wanted to split up the rap, because there, there was a bigger name hip-hop person at a different stage so they just wanted to split up people for the sake of not having everybody clump if they had a strictly hip-hop stage then no one would move and then eminem if you wanted to see eminem you'd have to be there like six hours before he started so um that's why they did that but i don't like that (laughs) uh so that was a bit annoying and then after that i went to an after party for wolf alice and i finally got to see wolf alice and it was super awesome they're like super they're like very energetic very awesome british band that like they have this insane spectrum of songs some of them are like super rocky um and you know like she's beautifully unconventional (laughs) and then you've also got the songs that are like um don't delete the kisses which is a song that's you know this is like big love song that's like kind of epic and sprawling and they just got this really cool range of a bunch of different songs, and that was like the capper. And 
as I wrap that up and, you know, had all those experiences, then I was like, I have seen a lot of music and I appreciate every moment of it, but I'm like full now, Yeah, which is a weird feeling for me. I'm not used to getting full of music. Um, but I did, and it's it was just really cool to have an excuse to have music be the only thing I cared about for a period of time because I like didn't socialize with very many people. I didn't have anything on my agenda other than seeing these these music shows. And if there's a thing you love, I would highly recommend finding an excuse to do that exclusively for a longer period of time than you're used to because it really does it changes you in a different way. Like you're, you're fuller than, than you usually get to be. So I saw some concerts. This is a song about shin splints. They're probably not fun. No, I don't have them though. So I'm a happy clam. Clam splints. (laughs) Yes, indeed. It's like the cannon without the wheel. It's like, the shelving without the steel it's like the steel without the worker it's like the price is right without the bob burker it's like the bob burker without the celebrity it's like the terrifying children's show without the teletubbies ace hey ben i was gone and you played some video games. I did. Uh, I had to fill the time with something with Brian out of my life. So <laughs> I play a lot of games. I, I did other things too, but games is a big part. And one that I think is worth mentioning is this game called The Walking Dead, which uh, was made by this studio called Telltale. And um, the original Walking Dead, kind of like season one, was kind of the... The can you first... can you recap for folks again like the episodic st- season structure for yeah. video games because I feel like that's a new concept for most folks. Right. Well, that's what I was going to go for. Great. So, so Walking Dead is uh, like the first game that that tried to hit the reset button on what adventure games would be basically. So, point and click adventure games way back when were kind of these like, uh, you know. Originally, originally, they were these very, like, pixelated, text-based, like, you click on, like, type in how you want to interact with stuff and whatever. And then they kind of evolved a bit. And, you know, my first experience with point-and-click adventure games was uh, playing, like, Putt-Putt and, and Pajama Sam and Freddy Spy Fish. Fox. Spy Fox, yeah. And um, the those games were... Uh, they were my childhood. Like, that's, that's what I, I loved growing up. And... Walking Dead was kind of like uh, Telltale Games decided that they wanted to take some of the elements of point-and-click adventure games and, first of all, bring them into a 3D environment, which changes things a lot, and then, second of all, uh, add in uh, this this new format for, for games that's um, episodic-based. So a lot of the old point-and-click adventure games, um, from my experience, stuff like Pajama Sam or whatever have these different installments, but they're not kind of a continuous narrative. And uh, something like Telltale, a studio like Telltale, they're all about kind of making the the television equivalent of of a game where it's a story that's broken up into smaller chunks. So rather than saying like, 
here's The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt. Feel free to play whenever you want for the next 150 hours of your life. Um, and they say, you know, here's uh, a game that you can finish in a sitting. It takes you like an hour or two to play through. And, uh, and then there are five of those installments and then that story is told, you know? Um, so their first real foray into this was this game called The Walking Dead, which is based on a comic book. And again, it's kind of this zombie apocalypse thing um, where The Walking Dead as a series, as an kind of like intellectual property in many different forms is really all about what, what happens to human beings when they're pushed to the edge. So uh, what Telltale has done, kind of their, their big deal, is looking at narrative branching events. So like you have to make a lot of tough moral choices very quickly. Um, and they, they've now gone on to make a lot of different uh, materials based on other intellectual property like um, Borderlands and Game of Thrones and Batman and a whole bunch of other stuff. And the, the thing about Walking Dead that I think is the one that, you know, that's, that's the, the IP that speaks to me the most is that it's in this world that's pretty dark and it's pretty brutal and it still has these like really nice moments of human connection in it. Um, the, the interesting counterpoint to all this is this game, Life is Strange, that we've mentioned before, which kind of looked at what Telltale was doing specifically with Walking Dead and said, you know, well, what, what you know, there, this isn't a monopoly, like we should be able to make this stuff too and tried something totally different with an original IP and Life is Strange, um, which, you know, is successful, possibly <laughs> more successful. Um, but one, one thing that's interesting about Walking Dead is that, you know, it is episodic in these chunks. And, uh, you know, from a narrative design standpoint, which is how I really um, think about things and also what I really am fiending for now that I've been playing all these, like, massive open world games. And now that you're a narrative designer. Yeah, that, that also... <laughs> I'm a professional narrative designer, which is cool to say, um, that I really, uh, I'm looking at how, you know, Walking Dead is this linear narrative where there are all of these like high stakes choices that you're making constantly, usually with a, with a timer on them. So like quickly choose, like, do you, uh, save this character? Or do you save this character instead? And so there's, yeah, there's like people's lives just willy-nilly being thrown in your face of like you have to choose if this person lives or dies right and it's and it's more brutal than that also like especially as as the season has gone on um it's not just about like oh man somebody else died but it's like oh man this person just got their arm chopped off or like this person had to like so shut a wound while they were still conscious by themselves or like there's there's pretty disturbing stuff and uh and the the kind of choices as they come feel like they should be intense in the moment um but first of all the fact that it's just like non-stop violence and an adrenaline fueled um moments um you know there's there's slower parts where characters are just talking or walking around or whatever but you they last about like five minutes and then there's something else that's like crazy that happens about as long as you expect them to in the zombie apocalypse right and and the the difference between that and Life is Strange is that, you know, in Walking Dead, there's not that much time and effort that's put into, like, shaping three-dimensional relationships between you as a player and your player character and the other characters, the non-player characters. And 
that lack of a bond leads to this very like desensitized experience where you see all this carnage and this violence and this tragedy and it doesn't hit you very hard which feels like it it it's not working as intended because you know they really want these moments to be emotional um but you know we were sort of talking this idea that in some ways that's better like it's better to have a game where all of this horror becomes desensitizing because you know as survivors of this like trauma filled world these people would be you know having to disconnect or you know just otherwise you can't survive lose control yeah um so so yeah i think that um that's all that's all working well the one the one kind of like larger question which i don't really have an answer to is it's a linear experience like even more than a lot of kind of narrative-based, choice-based games. Telltale games, your choices do not matter. Like, if if you choose to save, if you're choosing between saving this person or that person, and you choose the first one, then they'll be dead in the next 20 minutes because the game has to continue no matter what choice you made. And they'll, like, throw in a scene or two or, like, a line of dialogue down the line that's like, oh, remember when you chose to save this character then like you feel like your choices mattered but they don't like it's it's a scripted series so the question is like if it's linear and if there's not a lot of like strategy or systems or mechanics other than making choices that don't have any narrative consequence then like why is that better than just watching it as a tv show you know because there is a walk or reading it as a graphic novel totally um so I, I'm more engaged by it. I don't know if it's just because I like games and I'm like used to them and I want to like hold forward and have a character move. Um, I, you know, there's there's one sequence that's notable in in the second season you're playing is this kind of like youngish girl and there's a moment where, where she has to make a really tough choice without saying any spoilers and they it's excruciating to do it like they don't let you like click do it and then it's done like it takes several iterations of clicking on stuff and moving and it's it's really horrifying you know um and the fact that you are continuing to click on things and press buttons in order for this horrible thing that has to happen to continue that has an element of engagement um but from a narrative design standpoint it's basically just a tv show so it is interesting to think about like what what value does interactivity add to a narrative experience if it's essentially linear in the end um so no real easy answer to that question yeah and you've played through almost all of season two and season one what would you say are the primary differences between them or do they feel like very much a continuation of the other uh they definitely feel like a continuation they do a nice job of of kind of setting a story in motion in the first season and then continuing in the second and you know i have i have the third on my docket and the fourth is just about to come out fourth and final one um but i think that telltale as a studio sort of hits a, a routine and sticks to it um the from a mechanic standpoint not a lot evolves it's basically the same thing over and over again and they don't really have elements to work with other than click on thing and then click on thing with thing you know um or like move around or make choice 
that doesn't matter. So like, there's not there's not that much of an evolution in that sense. Um, what I will say is, is changing a lot, which I love, is you really feel like the the main character of most of the games, other than the first season. Um, her her evolution is really powerful. Like mm. she's she's the reason that I'm sticking with this game because you know I I have started to like form a connection to her as she's growing up in this horrifying world, mm. you know, and the first season's really about her going from a world where she's just like, you know, you, you find her in, in the first game in a treehouse, and she doesn't know where her parents are. And the game, the first game starts with like the, the apocalypse has just hit and nobody knows what's going on really. Um, and by the second and third and into the fourth season, you're, you're in it. Like everyone has begun to develop this sense of, of we're now rewriting the rules of society where nothing that you thought was safe is safe anymore. Um, and, and for this, this little girl Clementine to, to be going from this kind of terrified young girl to this like hardened survivor pretty fast and like seeing how not just in terms of the choices that I'm making, but just the choices that are being offered Mm -hmm. that she's capable of a lot now that she wasn't before. And I can see that she's going to continue to like fall into this really horrifying adulthood, which, you know, that's, that's how childhood trauma works. Like you, you, you grow up too fast and you start being very good at some things and very stunted in other ways. And I'm seeing that in her in a way that's really compelling to watch. Um, so I want I want to see her through to wherever place she ends up. Cool. And uh, a game that is less <laughs> heavy and more and more uh, uh, interactive in a lot of ways is this game called Cook Serve Delicious. So we met in our big episode ten mega special whatever on video games. We talked about the reasons pe- we like certain games for certain things. So that would be definitely one that falls under like story and narrative and oh, yeah. like big overarching story design of like following a character and like seeing them evolve and such. Uh, Cursor of Delicious is not that game. No. It's a game that's a lot more about like, um, I don't even know if it's the systems. It's basically, so um, if you're the kind of person who finds it really comforting to have a task to do and then like figure out how to do it most efficient efficiently and like that to you is fun not even like stressful just like fun then cook serve delicious might be a game worth checking out um it's available on like ipad and ios and also computer naturally where i'm playing it um so basically you have a few orders come in for different dishes and you have to serve the dish so like soup prepares differently than pizza prepares differently than pretzels and you make these things, serve them to your customers whenever they're ready. And it's all about like hitting the right thing at the right time. So if you're talking about, uh, a, let's talk about something simple like uh, steak. You have to choose like how much seasoning, juicing, and citrus to put on the steak. So like it'll say at the bottom, you need three seasoning and one juice. So you have to like hit S three times and then J once and then cook it. And then once it's cooked the right amount, you serve it to the customer and then you you did it. Yay. And then there's like little chores that pop up. So like you have to flush the toilet or like you have to take out the trash. Um, and it's a game that's all about um, like doing the right prompt at the right time. 
So if you're like my brain and you're like, I see a pattern here. I love doing this pattern really efficiently. And I'm like, the soup comes up and I see that the first ingredient is bouillon cubes that I know immediately I'm hitting W, U, S, A, down, 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 T, down, 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 Y, down, down, enter. And like, that sounds like a madman, right? <laughs> but that's what the game like kind of teaches you to do. Um, and there's like, there's a nice sense of progression. Like you get more foods and then different foods let you compete in the different bets. And then the game does really well of the like, where does your attention lie? And there's like a big thing in the corner that's like, you need a 20 combo. And then even though you know a 20 combo is like a thing that you can normally get, you're preparing your food and then you're just kind of staring at it. You're like, oh, I only have 10. And then you're just like slightly less focused. And it's like one of those games that like plays with the little things like that. It's just, it's a really satisfying game if you like, turning off by being active which mm. i've talked about a, a lot about before but it's like a gaming criteria that i really really like where mm. you don't think at all but you're like still requiring activity which a lot of the reason i like certain board games is like that too um this is a great game for that um that's not a game you get lost in there's no story at all but it is very like um it's very rewarding to start getting better at this like efficiency task yeah well what, one thing that struck me about it is that it's a bit like it's in the vein of you know there's certain parts of it that are in the vein of something like lemonade tycoon or whatever where you kind of like have a business that you're running and it's just that rather than you know when i whenever I played a tycoon game you just uh, sit there just, and watch the numbers go up yeah and hit fast forward <laughs> or whatever yeah and it wouldn't matter but in this you have to actually like operate the the restaurant and you have to do all the tasks and in each individual task is fairly simple but especially like during rush hour and stuff like that there's just a lot going on at the same time so you have to be able to like see something do it and then move on to the next thing and get it done efficiently yeah and um, even if you mess up you have to like you can't just be like ah oh, crap i'm not, you, you have to keep going because yeah. there's more orders and i think there's an article on pc gamer about Cook, Serve, Delicious 2 recently, where the person was like, I initially tried to play it, and it was too stressful for me. But then I kind of viewed the game as if it was like one of those cooking shows where like Gordon Ramsay's yelling at people. <laughs> and whenever I cooked a meal, and then it, you know, I put chicken in the soup, and there shouldn't be chicken in the soup. I'd hear like Gordon Ramsay going, why the F is there chicken in this soup? What the, <laughs> you're a terrible chef. And like the second they did that, it started being a game that wasn't stressful. It was like fun and funny. Well, I think the one thing that's really nice about the way that it's designed is that you don't really lose. Yeah. Like even, even when you're not doing well, there's still, it's always another day. You always have more people come in. There's nothing that's like, nobody is coming to your place anymore. Game over. Like that's yeah. not what happens. It's just every day is a new day. So for people who are like obsessed with having everything be perfect, then that can be really stressful. But if not, you just kind of do the best you can. You get through another day, and then and then you you'll keep be going. you'll and you'll be better tomorrow. Yeah, because totally. it is like as a game about learning cycles and doing things over again. And then you'll like you'll finally have your one food down, and then you'll upgrade it, and then there'll be new options. And you might go, oh, that's annoying, or you might be like, oh, well, I knew how to cook fish, so I'm glad there's a slightly slight variation on it because otherwise it was a bit brain dead. Right. Um, those and like getting better at those things of like initially seeing pasta and being like I never remember what button onion is, and then going to the point where you're like oh yeah that's V and you're like why is it V <laughs> but you know it's like those little things like that or, no it's N but anyway yeah um, it's cool doing it as a game to turn off 
and that's the podcast. That's 14. That's the Popcast episode 14. Yes, indeed. Bernard Zeiger, also known as Ben, Brian Computer, all saying words in your little eardrums. That's it. Bye. (laughs)